Oh, but I feel like we have to explain to our audiences now. <laughs> it's okay. I thought that you want to mention this piece of news. Hi, this is Helen. And this is Jessie. And you're listening to Asian Bitches Down Under. Well, in the middle of our conversation, we're talking about controversies of translation. In the, in the translation world. Yes, yes. And we were we spent the last 10 minutes gushing about Anton He. Yeah, we love if him. You haven't, yeah, if you haven't heard of Anton He, um, H-U-R. He's a Korean-American translator based in Seoul who is kind of like, I'd say he's like the ocean born of the literary translation scene, as in like he's got such a great fandom. Like, um, mm. and he's very, like, I love him because he's very transparent and um, straightforward, I straightforward and he calls out bullshit about the whiteness of the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written a lot of essays and spoken out a lot about the way in which translation often is, um, has a tendency towards marginalizing, continuing to marginalize, um, um, you know, um, historically um, ostracized communities and the way in which there is no, this elusive, white reader is uh basically doesn't exist um but anyway we mentioned him because this week um the british museum was embroiled in a bit of a controversy when uh they basically had an exhibit called china's hidden century where they used the translations of a translator called yi lang wang um, without her permission or without her consent and so she called them out um over a series of tweets and images and and uh, she said she hadn't been paid she was not aware that uh, the british museum had used her translations of these poems that were used as part of their exhibit and um the the british museum then released a public statement on the they called it the copyright issue linked to the exhibit exhibit china's hidden history and i'll just read a few lines from uh the statement helen um they begin by saying recently we realized that permissions and acknowledgement for a translation by yiling wang had been inadvertently admitted from our exhibit china's hidden century this was an unintended human error for which the museum has apologized to Yilan Wang. So it goes on to say that they have offered her, uh, the translator, a uh, financial payment. Mm-hmm. And um, it says uh, that, that they take copyright permissions very seriously. Mm-hmm. And then um, towards the last paragraph, it says that um, over the past few days, this is our quote from the statement, over the past few days, our colleagues have been subjected to personal attacks on social media. This is unacceptable. They have spent years together with scholars worldwide working on the exhibit research project and the resulting publications. And um, basically Anton on his Twitter feed said, um, this is quote Anton's words, if the British Museum has any sort of academic values, it would not label criticism of its so-called scholarly practices as personal attacks. But we all know the British Museum is not a proper scholarly institution, but a mere pillager and a perpetrator of outdated colonial attitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, go Anton, right? Yes, perfect words to describe the situation. Yeah. I think if you're a curator, you should be aware of the rights and the property mm. values of a translator work. And I think it's very ignorant of not considering those values of people's hard work to tra- translation work it's it's hard okay it's really excruciating yeah yeah so hard it's 
almost treating your brain as a computer you need to receive certain informations and shuffle around and figure out to um you know put having another side of put out of another source of information that is a totally different language mm. a lot of people treat translation as a tool that is just you know um you know people take them for for granted yeah it's logistical some people consider that oh you can just use google translation mm, it's mm. not before we start recording i was talking to jess about how much that translation interpreting work it's such an amount of creative process as well. You need to have an elaboration of the original work to express into another language that is enough, close enough, and also culturally um, resonate that, you know, the other end of people could understand, could. It, it's hard. It's hard. That's all I can say, I think. Yeah. And do you want to mention also Helen this morning actually happened to um, have an interaction with Anton on Instagram when he was um, oh, yes. doing a live feed. What was he talking about, Helen? Do you yeah, want to rehash was, that for our listeners? Because um, I joined his live on Instagram probably a couple of minutes after that he started. So I I believe he was waiting for an award announcement for some sort of literature um, award. And then he lets everyone, you know, his followers to ask questions or he just had a brief interaction with his followers. Um, so I asked him that, or and, and he did mention that he has at the moment he has twelve books to be translated for the next twelve months, which is which is insane, insane. by it's the way, insane. guys. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> unprecedented. That. Usually with literary translators, yeah, most people can do. You know, translators they can do at the most. You know, one article a day. Yeah. I think for myself, my ability, I think one article, a thousand words a day is probably my maximum. And you yeah. can, that, you know, practically a book a month. And we're talking about probably three, 400 pages of, you know, yeah. or nonfiction anyway. And I asked him, oh, does the industry really lacks the literature translator? And he says, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, there's a particular skill sets that you need for literature translation. And it's not that easy to work in that industry. And particularly that you need to be familiar with a publishing industry. It's not just about translation. You need to understand the process of publishing, the process of editorial and the process of marketing yourself as yeah, a literary translator to, to know wow. to, to know how the people you want to be in contact with and the works mm -hmm. that you want to translate are, in, are you know, gotten into your hands. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I, we should have mentioned earlier, Anton Her um, is, I'd say, one of the trailblazers of, like, he's around our age. I think he's in his 30s. Um, no, he's and he's Yeah, he's my age. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. He's basically a millennial. And he's really a new generation of trailblazers who are really, um, I'd say, um, one of the really critical spokespeople for literary translators um, and especially people of colour, obviously, yeah. marginalised voices. Because mm -hmm. um, I believe in one of Yi Lang Wang's tweets, she did take a screenshot of a recent study in regards to the the status of the type of people who go into practice and who get to work as professional literary translators. Mm -hmm. And it was something like 20% uh, of them were not white. Mm -hmm. And and then the same figure for women um, when it comes to Chinese English translators. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really historically colonial space. Mm -hmm. And I'd say this kind of um, campaign to really call out the sort of um, history 
of literary translators and it's white dominant you know dominance by white men um has come i'd say in the last only handful of years and it's been really strongly driven by people like anton and you know a lot of people who contributed to um tilted presses um violent phenomena which is that book of essays i mentioned a few months ago on this pod uh, which co- contains about 30 essays from translators. people of color translators yeah. which you know is a e- extremely vital read mm-hmm. yeah i feel like i should pass that on to you helen yeah i should read that book absolutely um he also something that i remember anton said um oh, i just slipped out of my mind but i was just going to mention the importance of the book like the fictions like babel and disorientation also focuses on how white male dominates industry of asian language literature and you know yeah absolutely and it's an act of colonialism let's not forget white man dominates in a lot of industry and kind of like washes and established a certain standard that the work needs to be done in limit it kind of um abolished not abolished diminishes I mean, that's the word i was trying to find diminish um people of colors voices as well mm. the way that we mm. want to express ourselves or the way that um there is a different a uh, method or a different style to express a certain text you know for for example in the in the idea of translation but if you have a certain group of people that continually to dominate that industry and they have set the standard and the readers yeah. read their work and that's how readers are going to make made believe that is how a particular product supposed to be you know yeah exactly and you don't have any innovative progress in the future if the standard has been set there and gatekeepers you know yeah. gatekeepers of an industry is something that we need to look into it yeah absolutely discussed yeah yeah i mean helen you're a translator yourself um you work professionally as an interpreter uh i personally got into i became interested in translators and interpreters after reading one of my favorite books ever katie kidmore's intimacies obviously <laughs> but in in specifically regards to um literary translators so mm-hmm. Katie Kinamura's intimacy's character is a interpreter so she works at the ICC or something equivalent to the ICC in uh the Hague um the first kind of um character that i've encountered on in a book or on the in any kind of cultural text is actually quite recent and it it was of course Miko Kawakami's All the Lovers in the Night which is oh, a yeah. short book published uh, um what was published in Japan in 2011 so like a uh, many many years ago but only came to Australia uh, translated yeah um in the last 20 12 to 24 months mm-hmm. and um remember remember the character in there cuz i remember the um, Kawakami p- portrays the work the of translation yeah yeah of translation yeah really quite well and it it really she depicted the um kind of persistence that you need to keep going back to the text. Mhm. Yeah. And how long it takes, right? You oh need God. a lot of patience. So much time. I I mean even for myself that I continuously go back. Like for example, if you have received an article to translate on Monday and you do a draft draft translation on that evening and the next day you want you go over again and you think there's probably 80% of it that you want to change. Like your right. perception and the way that you frame the whole thing could be totally different 
mm-hmm. mean, the, the message is to go through, but it's just that the style, the the choose yep. of words that you might change, yep. the tone, the tone. Yeah, it's it's not <laughs> like I said, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah. All right, let's uh, move on to cultural consumptions this week. Helen, do you want to kick us off? Okay, so I want to kick off by sharing my probably one of my biggest achievements of this year. I feel like I finally finished listening to. I didn't even read. Yeah, that's a bit of short for. I, I didn't read it. I listened to a little live by Henya Yana Gihara this week. I completed the audio book. Um, which I feel really proud of because it's such a. I'm very proud of you. Uh, it's utterly heartbreaking reading or listening. I think because listening is almost like watching the play, like part mm. because you hear the sound, yeah, the yeah. from the um the reader. What's his ma- name? I can't remember. His Jude. Name. No, Olive Olive Wayman or well, Olive. Yeah, Olive Wayman. That's the, that's the voice actor who did the. Um, oh reading for a little life who's that he's an american um voice actor he does a right animation, but he, he did it so good like every character yeah, yeah absolutely amazing I, I know there are a lot, a lot of reviews that recommended to have a trigger warning for the readers before they start reading um mm. of course because there's a lot of disturbing explicit scenes yeah a lot of horrible obscene scenarios depend obviously depend how you perceive the level of the explicity but on the other hand a lot of love platonic mm. love friendship love non-blood related parental love are yeah. so overwhelming for me the whole book. yeah yeah um, so like i said um i listened to this book on audible and so i cried while i was walking my dogs i <laughs> cried when i was driving and listening yeah. to the book um yeah I literally sobbed through the entire final chapter. Yeah. The final chapter is the letter of Harold writing to Willem. Yeah. Um, and I just realized that the over two last past two months, I've consumed too much, um, extremely amount of highly visceral emotional content. Do you ever um, not? I feel like everything you I know, consume every is time like... I do. Yeah. But it's just, they're all about grief the last two months. Yeah. I really need something to change and yeah, have a mind shift, I guess. But overall, I really enjoyed listening to A Little Life. And you've got the book, and I, yes, I'm I do. Prepared to buy myself one to keep it and go back to quotes. Yeah, great quotes in there. I have a lot of the a lot of post-it notes flapping out of my copy, so and a lot of um a lot of highlighted passages and underlined passages. Yeah. Yeah, she's a remarkable writer, honestly. Amazing, amazing. yeah. <sighs> highly recommended for anyone who, yeah, has the something like thirty six hours <laughs> listening to yeah. it. or half. I think if you're gonna read it, probably you take six months to slowly digest it. Because mm. um, at one point, I just couldn't continue to listen to it. Some parts mm. are so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but you you really need to stop and you know just move yourself away from it and yeah yeah i'm sure i yeah, got something to adjust yeah. your mood and come back to it yeah it was yeah yeah quite difficult at some parts but it's just amazing it's uh, yeah brilliant brilliant work yeah yeah amazing amazing um i don't have um a book suggestion this week but we did 
go and see Julia Louis-Dreyfus's latest movie, You Hurt My Feelings, which is now showing in cinemas. And I feel like I don't ever go to the cinemas anymore because everything's, you know, streaming. Mm. Um, And uh, I became kind of obsessed with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, you know, since we've been watching Veep a lot. Yeah. And I love the psychotic ambition of Selena Meyer. I really love it. Mm. And um, and then also... um, a podcast of hers, which I'll go into detail later, but this movie we saw at Palace Cinemas and it's basically Julia Louis-Dreyfus um, plays a writer mm-hmm. who also teaches writing at the new school in New York and she's happily married with her um, therapist husband and she has a 23-year-old son. And basically um, she is very invested in her husband liking her work and so she's working on a new book and um every time she sends she gives her husband the draft he says he only says good things like i love it i love it i love it mm-hmm. and one day she and her sister are shopping in a kind of a Kathmandu adjacent store and then they stumble upon her husband talking to her sister's husband so they're hanging out mm-hmm. and they overhear them talking and she overhears her husband saying actually i hate i don't like my <laughs> wife's book i think it's terrible and so she has this kind of meltdown in the way that usually on screen we see women have a meltdown once they realize their husband's cheating on them. But this is not the kind of romantic infidelity that she's devastated by. She's devastated by the fact that he is continuously, yeah, continuously yeah. over a period of time, um, perpetually, um, perpetually committed this crime of lying to her, mm-hmm. uh, of like, um, saying that he lo- loves it when he actually hates it. And so she feels like she can't trust him anymore. Mm. Um, it's a very, it's a very New York story. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Yeah. And the screenwriter and the filmmaker, Nicole Holosena, she is also the same maker, um, of Enough Said, which is, um, uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus and James Gandolfini. I haven't seen that. Um, and a cup, and she also wrote the screenplay for one of my favorite movies, Can You Ever Forgive Me? which stars Richard E. Grant and Melissa McCarthy, absolute gem of a movie, completely underrated. Um, And she's like in her 60s, she's Jewish. uh, So all her movies have a sort of quirky um, sort of New York Jewish middle-class tone to them. Mm. I know it sounds like it's Woody Allen adjacent. Not really. I think that she is much more sensitive to obviously most all of her female characters, all of her central characters are female. And, um, it, it was such a, it was such a heartwarming film. Like, uh, mm-hmm. there are moments of like very moving, moving moments of, um, of, you know, devastation experience between people, but it's also just like a great film because it models what good relationships, like how to overcome these little things because you know who hasn't told a white lie to their partner to make them feel better you know like it kind of the 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 central yeah question at the heart of this movie is like um does it constitute lying when you just want to support your partner Mm -hmm. you know like do you tell them the truth or do you just say what you actually feel about their creative work because you want to support them Mm -hmm. you know where's the boundary yeah exactly you're you're with your most intimate person of life like where's the boundary of the support and where's the boundaries of truth yeah exactly i mean yeah to the point that doesn't hurt and you you never know how other person feels if you tell the truth i know yeah they can be very sensitive and yeah Mm -hmm. exactly 
So that's a great film, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And then finally, the podcast I wanted to rave about, which I was lucky enough to write about for Women's Agenda this week, nice. mm -hmm. is um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's podcast, new podcast, which came out a few months ago called Wiser Than Me, yes. uh, where she interviews people older than her uh, mm -hmm. about, you know, um, how old they are, um, do they have any regrets, like really explicit questions like do you still have sex? And these women are in their 70s, their 80s. Um, she interviews uh, Carol Burnett, who's 90, I believe. So like really, really like older women who we don't really hear from um, mm. in society, you know, because mm -hmm. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, yeah, she is 62 and she says when what it comes 62? to... 62? Yeah. Oh goodness, I feel like she's still the Elaine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. in my image, yeah yeah um okay. so she's like when it comes to older women we think maybe 50s or 40 uh 40, 50s or 60s but what about like women in their you know later years in life we never mm -hmm. hear from them mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. it, it's like um i i feel like for a lot of my 30s i've i've kind of tended to back out from hearing people give me advice but this is sort of so the interview she has are with really famous people like Jane Fonda and Amy Tan and Fran Lebowitz and Diane von von something, the woman who <laughs> invented the rap dress. Um, and um, she just like it's just so for me. It's kind of like spending time with Barbara, you know, um, a oh, friend who uh, my Barbara. one of my dearest friends who passed um, a few years ago at the age of ninety three, and like just spending time with these women. Uh, it kind of makes me just like gives me an idea of what to expect, I guess, mm -hmm. if I get the opportunity to age, to grow old, mm -hmm. you know, and and they have a lot of wisdom to impart, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, just yeah. just kind of like mm -hmm. talking to someone who's smarter than you and um, is more is more like the capacity for humility is wider than ours, you know, because we're still mm -hmm. young and stupid. And uh, it's just so, it's so great. I really love it. I love listening to these women talk about like their sex lives mm -hmm. and like regrets they have and what would they do if they could get, if they were, you know, 21 again. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, if you want some sage advice from awesome older women, it's called Wiser Than Me. And, you know, I just love listening to Louis, Julie Louis-Dreyfus' voice. So it's just the best. Mm, amazing recommendation. Um, before we move on to discuss the film that we both watched uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I want to make a quick mention of a Taiwanese Netflix original series. Uh, I promise one of our listeners that I'll mention this because this is such a good, great series. It's called Wave Maker. The Taiwanese title is Ren Xuan Zhi Ren Zhao Lang Zhe. So the drama focuses on a political party's department that looks after the marketing, public relations, and media. Um, people say that it is a bit similar to the House of the Cards, but rather the central characters being the presidents or the, their family, the central characters are the staffers of the presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. um, the, the drama highlights on a lot of corrupted culture of sexism in Taiwan political arena. There's uh, the power dynamics with the system, how the team works, together to resolve sexual harassment issues. There's also parts about how the victim survivors have the courage to stand up and talk about their stories, the willingness to accept the media attacks, because, you know, as well, we know that victims are flooded with media and social mm. media attacks when they come out and talk about their story. 
um, for me, one of the most heartbreak scene was the, the victim of the sexual harassment. And also she's a victim of revenge porn. Uh, when she spoke on the national TV, her granddad saw it on the TV. And the scene was just so heartbreaking that, um, that he, he was watching the TV and you see his expression changes from kind of not anger, but sad, extremely sadness from an old person is always heartbreaking. Mm. And he and later he waits for her at the train station when she returns home and embraces. I'm now gonna crack into a, a sob now because it was just so heartbreaking. Now mm. I've seen. Um, it also empathizes the pressure of the staff from you know political parties. They often have to face during the campaign period. They have to be forced to choose between their family or their career. Overall, it's a brilliant TV series um, coming out from Taiwan. Obviously, I have to recommend it. Um, mm -hmm. So it's called Wave Maker. It has my favorite, favorite, all-time favorite Chinese actress, uh, Xie Yingxuan, who plays the deputy of the department. She plays a lesbian who struggles to impress her conservative politician father, um, but still has to st stand strong after being insulted by their like close friends because she's she's lesbian yeah so mm, um mm. wave maker yeah so anyone who are interested um please go and check it out and that's on netflix that's on netflix yeah that's on netflix amazing and finally our cultural consumption we would like to talk about this uh Taiwanese indigenous movie gaga which i don't have any notes on my in front of me because we're just going to talk talk freely about um, well, you've watched it three, four yeah, times. Yeah, I've watched it three or four times um, before the screening at Sydney Film Festival last week and just went to the screening and I did the interpretation for the Q&A afterwards. Uh, so Gaga is a movie about a Ataya family up in the west, eastern east coast uh, mountain range of Taiwan. It's a fictional village. Um, it's about a family who happens to be losing their land because of the modern society um, progression in how the a country is governed and the siblings conflicts of getting into involved in politics and there's um you know there's a story side story about a young daughter who for pregnant to this um who, to this man who doesn't speak there family language which was so hilarious yeah his name's andy yeah and he's um he looks korean but he's basically he's a Chinese, kiwi yeah. he, he he plays like a kiwi Asian. Yeah. yeah and he only speaks english yes um so i want to uh hear your thoughts about the movie jess so i had the privilege of sitting in the audience while helen was there as the um interpreter for the um director at the q a at the end of the session um of the movie and um i really loved it um i didn't know what i was i watching as in i didn't read up about it i wasn't sure if it was a documentary or a film um because it had documentary styles in it i guess yeah, it towards does, the beginning yeah. as well but um, I thought it was um, an extremely joyful and well-balanced, like tonally well-balanced story about family and um, the duty that we owe to those that we are blood connected to mm -hmm. um, and, and doing that with grace. Like I feel like all the characters, none of them were inherently toxic in any way. You know, they were just, um, they were just normal um 
kind of human beings trying to sort of negotiate the best for their family. I feel yeah, like they want to do the best for their ch- changes, yeah, within yeah. their family. So, you know, they they come across financial problems, they come across debt, they come across um a, a daughter who is you know, 20 and pregnant with a guy that they've never met. And um there's a lot <laughs> of like playfulness. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of playfulness and soulfulness in the movie. I saw it surrounded by uh I think I had like a Taiwanese couple sit next to my left. But then the rest of the crowd were mostly white people, old mm. old, old white men. There were a couple of old white men as well, mm. which I was like, I delighted to see. You know, that it's great that white yeah, people interested are interested in, in yeah. yeah, in like the indigenous culture, uh, and it's people of Taiwan. A lot of people don't know that Taiwan has a, you know, really um, important critical cult, um, indigenous population, yeah. mm-hmm. and this this um, story, like Helen said, um, narrows in one of them and. I, I felt I think my favorite character, obviously the grandma, but my my top favorite is also the son, oh, the, um, the little boy. boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just so charming and su- such a little brother. Like that universal kind of um, um, silliness that he has mm-hmm. is really yeah. was really really well depicted. The, yeah. the script was very strong. So the young, he's not young anymore, but the 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 boy who plays Enoch, the the little brother, Enoch, yeah, yeah. So he's been with the director since he was like twelve or thirteen. So he participated oh, yeah? in um, Lahao Mebo's other films in documentary or in feature films before, mm-hmm. and he's always been um, seen as the character that is still remains innocent. That's what the director sees from him. He still has mm-hmm. that innocent yeah. um, vibe. That yeah. you don't see from you know a lot of indigenous kids who has been urbanized who moved on to a metropolitan area yeah um, so that's the his you know top trade characteristics that the director sees in him um that's why he continues to be involved in her film and apparently um you say that because the film might look a bit like um documentary style is because 90 percent of the cast are first-time actors Mm. Yeah, I mentioned the director mentioned that during the Q and A, and you know even the first time being on the big screen, the the actress who played the grandmother won the um, Golden Horse Award for mm-hmm. Best mm-hmm. Supporting Actress. It was just amazing because she just, she was just she said that she was just playing herself. You know, she was mm. just natural. And there was a lot of improvisation between the crew during throughout the shooting. Um, even the I think the the shoot for the last scene where they you know still have to kill a sacrifice pig, yeah, and of the uncle, the elder son, at the very last scene. And I don't know if you remember that Enoch um, stabbed the pig, and then he. Mm dab the blood the pig's blood onto his forehead as like a mm. symbol of like a indigenous tattoo apparently right. that wasn't scripted right so he just did that out of some sort of improvisation and just very natural came to him as an indigenous person that he knew he had to do that right improvise that that scene i guess yeah that he was changing by becoming a man yes that's right yeah because throughout the movie we see him that he wants to do that um he wants to kill the pig. He's, he wants yeah. to slaughter a pig yeah he because that's a rite of passage yeah. for those men that's right yeah so that was really brilliantly done at the you know conclude for the conclusion of the film 
Incredible. Hopefully Gaga, um, directed by Lahal Mabel, will be, I'm hoping to see it will be streaming on Apple TV soon because I, I think, I believe all her other works are all streaming on Apple TV. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so we'll take Incredible. a break and when we come back, we this week we're going to talk about issues on food and Oh, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this, but um, we'll get into it about Culture Day food preparation. Can't wait. Hi there. If you're new to our show, thanks for tuning in into our program and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, we're forever grateful for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. It has really helped this podcast to gain a great exposure as our mission is to center the perspectives of people who look like us, who are marginalized historically to the sideline of conversation. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google or Spotify and leave a rating and review. And of course, as a small podcast program, we rely on listeners' support to continue this work. Please do check out our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation in order for us to continue to advocate the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Okay, so we're back. Um, this week, I I don't even know how to start with this because this is the thought that I had for weeks, and it just come, came to my mind when recently looking at forums of you know ethnic moms sharing their ideas online in Facebooks on Facebook groups mm-hmm. or asking questions regarding to their kids, regarding to the issues they, you know, face in life, marriage, things like that. And one of the topics that I often see, you know, maybe once a couple of years is that my child is having a culture day at school. What food should I prepare? If anyone has any recommendations? Um, you know, mothers from ethnic backgrounds asking for advice what to bring to their kids' schools culture day. For me, I'm gonna go over and rant, rant about this because Jess is, this is this is the platform. <laughs> this is the platform, babe. I just thought that the mental and physical labor, which I initially thought as a labor of love, is not longer a labor of love to me. Um, I never done this for my kids because, thankfully, my my kids' school never really had anything as a culture day they had something like similar to culture day but they never ask parents to bring food um for any reason you know hygiene or safety reasons but um when i see posts like this when mothers asking for recommendations or suggestions of food or tiny's food to bring to school i feel like it's becoming like a labor of frustrations because um mm. our listeners would know and be familiar of how much I resent Mother's Day and Father's Day's event at school because they're unpaid labor done by volunteers who are 99% mothers. Mothers. Yeah. 
And you got me thinking about, you know, this request of family of color, bring ethnic food to share and promote diversity is somehow tokenistic is also very exploitative. Um, my reason is that I start thinking and I thought about it for a while that for myself, perhaps a lot of, you know, um, people of color out there in Australia, growing up being laughed and bullied of having ethnic food for lunch and it mm. seems it, it does seem like a, for now it seems like a positive direction getting kids to learn about different cuisines by creating this idea of culture day but then some response i saw from the mothers were like oh my child came home and told me that not a lot of kids from their class had dared to try out food and some even made comments that it looks disgusting and now my child is sad it's like i, mm. I Yes. I have gone through that trauma when I was a child and yeah. because yeah. the idea of sharing food to promote diversity, my kids get humiliated again. It's just, it, it's outright ridiculous for me. And on the other hand, I feel like it's, um, it's like a, a bit like exploitation, you know, it's like unpaid labor by the mothers. I will guarantee you it is always the mothers who take up the responsibility. 99.5% of the time for both mental and physical labor. Um, you just have to think about the amount of preparations that you need to do. Like what you have to mm. consider what ingredients that, you know, the other kids can or cannot consume, the type of dishes that the kids will like or dislike, uh, the extra time that you need to go out and buy those things to make the dishes to ensure that the food is kept at the perfect temperature to eat. Oh, oh my God. I just start thinking about it. Those fucking mental loads, it's explosive, you know, it, in the name yeah. of promoting diversity and it's unpaid as well. Yeah. I, I did question, I, I did kind of jump into the discussion and asked um, the mothers, oh, what about the white families? What do they bring to culture days? Yeah, um, they say that. Oh, some just ordered Domino pizza. Oh, you're kidding! <laughs> Meat pies and sandwiches. <laughs> some kids even bring um, packets of chips. You know. Um, wow! 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 <laughs> when I heard chips, I thought, oh, brilliant! The solution is that may I, I, I just suggest them just bring tiny snacks. Yeah, yeah. Not so much. So so many types of snacks that kids can try it out. Um, but then the response I got was, uh, oh, I really don't want to lose, you know, make my kids lose their face because just, you know, bringing packet food is not, is not good enough. I, I yeah. assume that's what they mean. But Right, right, right. Yeah. So for me, it's like I understand the desire to be seen as a culture, you know, but is it, worthwhile to do these unpaid labor and stress yourself out you know almost yearly to deal with the idea of not bring something to share with the kids but you can't be guaranteed that the kids are going to learn or enjoy the food and then it repeats every year you gotta you have to think oh i, I don't want to bring the same food from last year and just it's just the amount of mental load is just kind of overwhelming if mm. I'm in position. Yeah. So I like to ask the question is that are the family, you know, are the 
family with immigrant backgrounds for these kind of events, are we responsible to educate others about diversity? You know, is that our responsibility to get people who are very narrow mind to learn about diversity? I, I don't think so, personally. No. I think yeah. you know, school could do something else other than getting the mothers stressed out about food preparation. They can come up with something else to promote diversity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. My rent of the week. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is, yeah, you've really kind of highlighted the invisible, unspoken burden mm-hmm. of when when communities create these events, you know, mm-hmm. what that actually looks like for the person um, who is, needs to organise what to bring. And it's, like you said, almost always the woman in yeah. the family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just feel sad for when whenever these posts come up, I'm like... Extra work for women. Yeah, extra work for yeah. women. I'm paying. Exactly. Are you yeah. never seen dads stressed about this? A dad would of? never do that. Yeah, <laughs> ever. You're looking at a full time working mother who needs yeah. to do with the home and full time work, two kids, and then this, you, you get a note from school saying that oh, culture day. You know, you're in an Asian. Yeah. Can you bring something Asian or can you bring something Chinese to the school? And then, I don't know, you find out <laughs> you had to go through all those mental calculations and then you end up bringing, you know, a play of spring rolls and then all other masters are bring spring rolls and so, so like, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. get a free meal that is provided by the unpaid you. labor yeah. of the moms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they should, you know, the only way to change this is if they explicitly say we would like the fathers to prepare mm. the meals. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, send that home, and the mother is going to definitely pick up, take on, take yeah. on that duty. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So the school wanna, needs to do. You demand. don't want to like upset your child because your child feels like I have to bring something to school. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Case. Yeah. And also, I think that these events um, are really important. They, mm. they, you know, they make the the year more interesting. Um, you know, kids need to have these kind of events um, to have something to look forward to as well. You know, they're, they're really important events, but I think the school needs to say more explicitly, um, we would like it if uh, um, the fathers prepare something, you know? <laughs> Can you ever imagine that kind of notes being sent home? <laughs> yeah, no. Nah, they, they would. <laughs> the the kids are going to turn up to the school empty-handed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or like, they, or they said, my dad uh, is not home, or my dad uh, is a lawyer, and he said you're not allowed to do this. <laughs> or take oh, yeah. away, or maybe they'll just go to a full call and grab something. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's all I can that's say. That's the yeah. That's the wrap up of our episode this week. Uh, hit us up on Instagram um, and uh, send us a message if you had any comments. And tell us uh, if you guys have any experience. Um, and when you were a kid in primary school, who organised your special lunch day um, contribution? I'm sure it was your mum. Most likely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't doubt it at all. <laughs> okay, so that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google and Apple and give us a five-star rating. 
If you'd like to support what we do here at Asian Speeches Down Under, head to Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Um, that's it from us this week, and we'll chat to you next time. Bye.